0: The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit Ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludi:
1: The sin of silence. A study in the confessing church of Jesus Christ. I had a title for this one that's been my title for weeks, and I've even told multiple people I'm preparing a message called the Aryan Paragraph, and which of course doesn't mean much to probably a lot of you. It's like what is that? Which is why we changed it to something that makes a little more sense, because this is what the Aryan Paragraph is all about. The Aryan Paragraph was an actual paragraph, a little clause, in uh, in a legal document in Germany uh, quite a few years ago. But that little paragraph and how the church responded to it uh, is a very significant watershed point in the history of what we could even call modern Christianity. And so what I want to do is we're going to have to go through a little history in this. And that's been a hard challenge for me because I want to give the biblical basis for what I'm talking about. But I also need to give you history. And I feel like to give both and makes it too long of a message. But to trim out both makes them both skimpy, and so it doesn't feel like it has the weight and the authority that is necessary. This has been a really challenging message for me. Technically, it probably should be around a four-hour one, and I know. Some of you know I could do it, too. Uh, (laughs) And yet, I, I want to keep this trim, and I want to get to the point of action as quickly as possible without trimming too much out. So you'll notice as I go through, there might be a few agony points where I want to say more, but... I probably shouldn't. The Aryan paragraph, I don't want you to be intimidated by this huge-sounding thing, a word that we don't even know, Arian. Uh, but let me just suffice it to say, in the beginning, that I'm going to use this as a placeholder or an idea. It is the decision-making points. When you come to a crossroads and you need to choose this way or this way, there is a complication that stands in our midst. We can call it a Goliath. Goliath is boasting. He is mocking the church of Jesus Christ. You need to make a decision. One direction is silence. The other is to actually stand up to it. Uh, Which one seems the most reasonable? In America, we have been trained and groomed to be silent. I am going to say, and I'm not exactly sure how it's going to come out, I feel in my spiritual bones that we have crossed a line in this country. I have, I'm 44, and I grew up in what many would have called a lukewarm Christian culture, but it was still Christian. At a certain level, it still was Christian. When I was young, a lot of businesses didn't even do things on Sundays still. I mean, that's just 44 years ago. And you know, soccer was always on Saturdays. That's when the games were. They would never even dream of doing them on Sundays. It's little kids' sports. Uh, There were certain things that were just wrong in society. And there were fringe groups that wanted to say, look, you're not enlightened, America. You're you're not going the way of the European, which long ago departed from these Judeo-Christian values. But we still had them. We still have governance of what is appropriate in movies, so we'd have ratings on it. We had FCC, in other words, different things that would govern what could be allowed onto the televisions, lest we defile our younger people in society. These were normal things, and yet something has happened in my lifetime. In fact, I would say in the past couple years even, it is not just a slide. It is like, uh, you know, a falling off a cliff. I feel it. I feel like we are not just post-Christian, but we actually have become anti-Christian in this country. That what I represent is no longer semi-normal, because most people would say that they're Christians in this country, wouldn't they? But it's actually anti-American. That what I stand for in this, I know this isn't a pulpit, but let's call it a pulpit. In this pulpit is actually considered a crime against our country now. You will see in this message how I respond to that. Because I am being asked in very subtle ways in our culture to be quiet. I am being asked as a pastor, even though it's not necessarily spoken, there isn't a law mandating it. There is not some Gestapo agent that has come up to me with intimidating tactics. There are other forms of intimidation. It's it's the concept of political correctness. It is a shunning It is a looking down, it is a chuckle, it is a laugh. It's like, oh, you're one of those. Which would cause me to be silent, which would cause me to hold back from confessing and speaking what I know to be true. There's a road, there's a division, silence or confession. Every single one of us is at the same juncture. For whatever reason, we are reaching a point of maturity you know the truth at this very hour in American history. One of the most critical moments maybe in all of Christian history is before us. And you are the age you are with a voice, with a body, with energy to do something about it. Are you ready to pick up five smooth stones and do something? So it's a cultural event, a socio-political, don't be intimidated by big words, occurrence that works to separate out the wheat from the tares and the sheep from the goats, the silent from the confessing. You have to choose. When the Aryan paragraph is written and it's set before a culture, it proves the true church from the counterfeit church. It proves the tares and it separates them out and it shows who is the wheat. It proves which are the goats and which are the sheep. And we have come to such a time as this. That's why this message is burning a hole in my soul. Because I, as a leader, recognize that to say certain things right now is likely gonna cost me my life. I have a wife and I have six children. And I know who I serve and I know what the priority is in my life. I have chosen to follow Jesus Christ. That is what I want my wife and my kids to always know. This is the hour for the confessing church to separate from the church that is too scared and politically correct. We believe the word of God. We believe that Jesus is in fact the son of God and that there is only one way to salvation. As politically incorrect as that may be, and even if it costs us our life, We represent the truth in this generation, and if we aren't willing to rise up and speak it, no one will. The authentic and the counterfeit. I read this in my last sermon. It's worth repeating. By their fruits you shall know them. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name... Done many wonderful works, and then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. I don't want to be one that he doesn't know. I want to be one that he says, I've known you, Eric. You have known me, I've known you. The twos. So, I had someone in our church ask, after the last message called the stigma, if we could just spend six months just on that theme because it's like we need to be trained. We don't just need to be inspired in one message, but we need to be trained in how to live as the confessing church, as the ones that are bold enough to stand firm. Instead of just knowing that we should stand firm, how do we disciple, how do we get discipled as the church to stand firm, to know how to stand and be the Rejected ones in a generation to put on the dunce caps and say, We willingly wear them. The twos, sheep and goats, wheat and tares. This is all throughout Christianity. It's an amazing thing, but all throughout Christian history, you're going to see two churches. Whenever persecution breaks out, there's always two churches. Know that there's always a church that is allowed to remain in a culture unmolested? It is. You start studying Christian history. Study communism, even. Just very specifically, the communists endorse a church. Christian, they allow Christianity to remain, even though it's an atheistic government. They will allow it. But it's not the church as you and I know the church should be. And then there's another church, known as the Confessing Church. Some of us know it as the Underground Church. In China, it's known as the House Church Movement. There's always two churches. Which church are you in? The story of two churches in China. So we have something known as the Three-Self Church in China and the Chinese House Church. One is authorized by the government. It is actually supported by the government. It is backed by the government. It's a church. It's Christian. You can actually hear the Bible in it. And so a lot of Christians here in America would say, why do we keep talking about the church in China being persecuted? Why do we keep mentioning this? I went over and visited. I went to a church, and they actually preached the gospel. It's a good question. You know that the house, this three-self church, and then you have this house church movement. The house church movement, a lot of their pastors are currently in prison, suffering. Uh, many of them have been killed. Why? What, what's going on? What are they doing wrong? I mean, why, if the, if the Chinese government is so backing Christianity, what's the big deal? There's this other church that is absolutely exploding. I think Dan was giving me statistics on it the other day, and he said, at the current rate that the house church movement is growing in China, even though it is under extreme persecution, there will be more Christians in the house church system in China than there are people in America in 10 years. Absolute explosion, but when is it happening? It's happening in a time of decision. Which church are you in? Three-self or house church? Caged or free? So the house church movement in China would say, it's not that the three-self Christians are not Christians. They're very careful not to declare that they're not Christians. They say that they are caged Christians. It's like a bird in a cage as opposed to a free bird. A bird in a cage will not and cannot reproduce. So in one generation those birds will be dead, and they will have no lineage. It's only the free birds that reproduce. And what you see is that exact thing. The three-self church is declining. It has no life because it can't speak of its faith. It can't reproduce itself. It's a bird in a cage. And then there is the house church movement, which refuses to be caged. It refuses to keep its tongue locked inside of its mouth and silent. It must speak. So remember, it's hunting season for wild birds in China. So which one? Caged or free? This is happening precisely as I'm delivering this message that we have two churches in China. Two churches. Which one are you in? Are you willing to be the caged bird? It's very reasonable to be the caged bird, and a lot of Christians in China choose it. However, there is something else that we want to catch a vision for as Christians. And that is to understand that we were not given birth by the Holy Spirit so that we could be in a cage defined by a governmental system to tell us what we could and we couldn't do. We are defined by a higher government. King of kings, Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. And what he asks us to do, we say, yes, sir. Every believer must make a choice. And if you think about it, the birdcage seems so reasonable. Okay, I'm going to walk you through something that we'll say. It's like a contract. We're going to lay it in front of each one of you. And it's the difference between maybe life and death. You can live a comfortable life the way you have been, still go to work, still still believe what you believe. You just need to sign this document. You just need to sign this document. If you're willing to sign this document in China and understand what a three-self Christian is as opposed to a house church Christian, if you were to agree... To the three-self model, well, guess what? You can live your Christian life unmolested, unharassed. Just sign this. It's laying before each one of us. So just sign right here and you'll be good to go. It's that simple. Just sign right here. So there's a spot for you to initial next to each one. I want each of you to evaluate if you are willing in your soul to initial what is in this request, this contract. I submit myself as a believer to the governance of the Communist Party in China, hereafter referred to as the party. This is, I, I'm writing this. I take, ag- took actually the three self-restraints and restrictions that the government has placed upon them, and I turned it into a contract. So I put it in my own words for you. So I submit myself to the Communist Party in China, and from hereafter I'm going to just refer to the Communist Party as the party. To be a good citizen, agreeable and helpful, to prosper the government and its agenda... So I put a little note in for you, just so you understand what this means. The so Three Self Churches report to the Three Self Patriotic Movement, which reports to the State Administration for Religious Affairs, which is controlled by the Chinese Communist Party. So to submit to the Three Self Church means you are submitting to the Communist Party, which by the way believes uh, in atheism. Okay, so that's who you're submitting to. So if you're willing to just be a good citizen and just you know, follow the status quo here in our country, you'll be fine. I understand that since the party is the one who decides how many people can be baptized per year in the church i agreed to not ever baptize unless given permission by the party i understand that since the party is the one who decides who can preach in the church no one who is unauthorized by the party can ever preach in the church these are reasonable requests aren't they i mean for peace of mind for comfort to keep my family intact to not have to go to prison not that much is being requested I understand that since the party is the one that decides what can be preached in the church, no message can be preached without first gaining the stamp of approval from the party. Imagine what they would think of my messages. (laughs) I understand that since the party is being so generous with Christianity as to allow it to continue functioning under their benevolent supervision... That only the attributes of Christianity that benefit the party ought to be emphasized in the teaching and instruction of the church. Ideas that prosper the development of good citizens and not ones that prosper counter-revolutionaries. I agree to not ever teach or preach on the subjects of resurrection. I mean, we're not having to give up that much, are we? You just can't teach on resurrection. I mean, what's the big deal? We can still teach on some other things. There's some other good truths in Scripture. Or on the second coming of Jesus. No, no, can't do that. We're just giving up a few key doctrines, not that much, but we can maintain our health, our sanity, our comforts, nor will I allow others to preach on these subjects unmolested. I agree to not ever teach or preach against other religions that deny that Jesus is God. I recognize that if I begin to use my belief as a war machine against others, that I will lose the right to enjoy such freedoms as I now share, thanks to the party. I agree to not ever say or infer that the atheist communist heroes of the party who have died went to hell when they died, for it is a well-established fact that all good communists go to heaven. So if you were to dare say that any of the communist leaders that were the heroes went to hell because they didn't believe in your Jesus, well, that's a crime against the party. I agree to never speak, teach, or preach against the practice of abortion. Come on, this isn't asking that much, is it? You can have your comforts, You can live the life you have been living and still have faith in Jesus Christ. I agree to never gather for Christian worship, teaching or preaching outside the official three-self church meeting points. I understand that teachers and preachers authorized within the three-self church system are not allowed to preach or teach outside their assigned location. I understand that evangelizing or giving out tracts is forbidden by the party. I understand that importing Bibles is forbidden, even if they are given away for free. I understand that printing Bibles is forbidden, even if they are given away for free. I understand that to be a Christian negates my ability to ever hold government office, a teaching position, a military position, or a police position, for these must always remain secular roles in a healthy China. And I understand that children cannot be Christians, nor teenagers be Christians. Come on. They're not asking that much. Does it really matter if we teach our kids to be Christians? You following me? This decision has not come full force before us yet as the American church. So I'm setting it before you today. You need to decide right now because it's coming. You need to make your decision on which church you're going to participate in. Because Christian after Christian in China refuses to sign this. And as a result, many of them have suffered and died. Why would they do that? Is it an unnecessary suffering, or is it a necessary one? Remember the name of this message? The sin of silence. I, I, the understand, agree to each of these above-mentioned terms of religious freedom and recognize that to violate any of the above terms constitutes a removal of all religious freedom and a crime against the party. Two churches, two agendas. The church that exists in order to subsist can only survive one more generation. If we make decisions to just try and survive, which is what the Three-Self Church is doing, hey guys, this is the best we can do. At least they're giving us a little leash to, to be Christians. If you only exist to survive, the church will be dead in one generation. It's been proven throughout history. The church that kowtows to this mentality is a dead church because it cannot reproduce. And the church that exists for the proclamation of the kingdom to go into all the world and preach the gospel will live. There's two churches and there's two agendas. There are always two. The church that just tries to survive and the church that defies and as a result thrives. Isn't that a funny thought? It's the church that defies such restraint upon its confession that actually thrives. God built us that way. That is like the elixir. It's the... It, it's the fertilizer to our soul when we stand up and we believe Jesus over any governmental law. You see, I will submit to the government. As a basic premise of my Christianity, I honor the authority that is God-given. However, if that God-given authority asks me to contradict the God-authority in my life known as the Word of God, I will say no. No matter the cost, my answer is no. There are always two, the church that goes silent and the church that confesses. The confessing church. The only real church is the church that does something. When you reach the Goliath, when you reach the challenge, when you reach that which defies the church and asks us to compromise, there's a road to silence and there's a road of confession where you must pick up five smooth stones and respond. You cannot sit down and be passive. That is what I'm going to define as a sin. He who knows what he ought to do and doesn't do it sins. You have been commissioned to speak the truth, to live the truth, to confess the truth. Confession is not just a use of the tongue, it's a use of the life to say, I will walk the narrow way. And when he had called his 12 disciples to him, speaking of Jesus, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. These 12 Jesus sent out. Jesus said to them, behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves, but beware of men for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. So this is Matthew 10. Now I'm skipping through it just to be more slim in my enunciation of it. But Jesus is sending out his 12. And he's given them a very specific cause and commission. But he gives them power to do it. But he also warns them that they're going to be sheep among wolves. And that they'll be hated for his name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. And what does he say? Do not fear them. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm amongst wolves, and yet I'm supposed to not fear, and I'm supposed to speak. Doesn't that sound a little contradictory? If I'm amongst wolves, I think I'm going to go into the fetal position and just roll over and play dead. Maybe the wolves will go away, not realize. I'm still twitching. I'm still twitching. See, whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. and Whatever you hear in the ear, preach it on the housetops. That doesn't sound like the wisest thing to do if you're amongst wolves. Do not fear. The second time in this whole uh, passage, do not fear them. Do not fear. Whoever confesses me before men, him will I also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me, before men. Jesus is just given the two paths. Silence and denial. Because to be silent is to deny. It's called tacit consent. When the Arian paragraph arrives and you don't say anything, it's the equivalent of agreement. So he who confesses, God will confess. Jesus will confess before the Father. Whoever denies and goes silent, what does it say? Him will I also deny before my Father who is in heaven. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. I don't know how you grapple with those things. All I know is there's a reason why I have a hole burning in my soul. I love my wife and I love my children. However, Jesus has given me a very, very specific commission Eric, love me more. If you really want to love your wife and children well, you have to love me more. You see, the secret to a successful church is we make sure our priority is not earthbound. It's on the heavenly priority. And when it is, we truly are marked by the love of heaven here in our relationships. After he and he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Whoever goes the easy route is not worthy of me. But whoever goes this route and picks up that cross, that's suffering. And he who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. He who receives you receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. And whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly, I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. You're going to find as we continue in this message... That there's a lot of things on this side of the ledger. But to go after them and to help them the way Jesus would ask us to help them is going to mean difficulty, inconvenience, suffering, imprisonment, mockery, death. And we're like, you've got to be kidding. We're Americans. We go the easy route. We're Christians. We pick up our cross. I don't care what country you come from. You're not an American or Canadian A German first, you're a Christian. The anatomy of confession. So here's our two words that make up confession in the Greek. Hama, that's how you pronounce it. Hama, it means in perfect agreement or in stride, okay? And so when we use that word today, it means like, similar, okay? So Hama and Logos, we would typically in the English say Logos. That is the name for Jesus Christ, ironically. It's the word of God. Jesus is the logos. He is the word. And so what we have is we have similar and in stride with the word. So confession, the Greek idea in the Bible is when the Bible moves or the word of God moves or Jesus moves this way, we match his stride. We walk where he walks. If he goes this way, we go this way. If he goes this way, we go this way. If he jumps, we jump. We are in perfect agreement, and that is the idea of confession. So if you are the confessing church, you are in agreement with Jesus. And so if Jesus defies the governmental authorities, so do you. If Jesus humbles himself, silent as a lamb unto slaughter, and allows his hands and his feet to be pierced, so do you. You see, you go where he goes. It's called confession. Homologeo is the word A verbal declaration of your thorough alignment and agreement with the word of God in text and the word of God in person. I am with him. That's confession. Where he goes, I go. Well, he's gonna die. So will I. We go where our Messiah goes, where the word of God takes us. Whoever confesses me before men Whoever homilageos me before men, him will I also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him will I also deny before my Father who is in heaven. So let's talk about the Arian paragraph. This is a placeholder for that which divides those goats from the sheep, those tares from the wheat, the counterfeit church from the true church. All I know is I want to be genuine. I really do. I know the pull, this direction, comfort, ease. It's a bait. I just want to fit in. I don't want to stand out. I don't want a bullet in my head. I don't want my head locked off. It's not like I'm waking up in the morning going, oh, that would be fun. I don't want that any more than you do, but I want the genuine version of Christianity. And I know many of you, if not all of you in here, desire the same. Do you feel weak Need? Yes. Do you feel like a coward? Yes. I'm not asking you if you have the answer in your own pockets. I'm saying you have it in Jesus Christ. You have his boldness, his courage, his strength to confess with your life. Arian. The word Arian, and I originally had a whole message on Arian. I sort of trimmed it all out. But the Aryan paragraph, there's Aryans and non-Aryans. The Aryans are the perfect race. They are technically Nordic. Uh, They have blonde hair and blue eyes if you really want to get down to it, which I take offense at. But they are the unmixed race. And so there's this perfect strain in evolutionary thought. Ironically, the consequences of evolution lead to this notion that over time, certain races have gotten lesser and certain ones have grown stronger. And so, in following evolutionary thought, we have something known as the Aryan Paragraph that begins to flow out of this thinking. And ironically, we see this in so many different areas in our world, however, most of us would recognize this goes back to Nazi Germany. The Aryan Paragraph is issued by Hitler in 1933. And it was the great divide of the church in Germany. So let's begin to explore this. Arian means noble, unmixed. The word actually means noble. Unmixed of the pure bloodline, not Jewish. The Jews are the mixed. They are the problem. They are the weaker. And to save the dominant species, we must eradicate and remove the mixture. Of what? Racial lineage is Jesus Christ. He's Jewish. When you follow this line of thinking, you'll notice that the devil always plants the notion, his goal is to eliminate the Jew. The Jew is not just the people, it's Jesus. He is the fulfillment of all Jewish history in one man. You see, this is an attack, and we need to recognize it as the church against Jesus. First and foremost, I'm not saying it wasn't an attack against the Jewish people, because it was. However, the same attack is still against Jesus. And anyone that would truly follow him will feel the pain. The story of the Aaron Paragraph in the Confessing Church. I'm going to cover a period of 14 years, 1931 to 1945. In the midst of that, you're going to see that World War II takes place. Now, for those of you that know your history in the early 1900s, You'll recognize a lot of this. However, I'm going to go into greater detail, and, but it's in very specific ways. I want to cover the process of both the Aryan paragraph and the response of the church. And I want us to grapple with these things to, to question, where do we stand today? So the players in our story, Adolf Hitler, we'll call him the Aryan. The Jewish people, they're the attacked. The German church, the silent Dietrich Bonhoeffer, The Confessing. Now, I could call it The Confessing Church. I'm going to use Dietrich Bonhoeffer as a case study. Many of you have read about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, or read his book, The Cost of Discipleship. His life is very unique. It's also very controversial, but he lived in a very controversial age where he had to make a choice at that crossroads. Nazi Germany, Adolf Hitler, stood right in front of him, and he was destroying and exterminating Jews. What would you do? He could go silent like the rest of the church, or he could do something about it. But to do something means his certain death. What does a man do? What does a church do? America, 1931. Isn't that funny? Well, you thought I was going to start in Germany. Start in America in 1931. Introducing our hero, Dietrich. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I'll just read this. A 25-year-old German theology student named Dietrich Bonhoeffer first visits the United States for seminary studies in New York. This young man notices something in America that bothers him. What do, you, what do you mean, bothers you in America, Mr. Bonhoeffer? Excuse me. The problem is over there. You guys have the issues. You guys have all this Aryan junk going on. We're not struggling with that over here. But something bothers this man here, which is actually going to play a role in him being able to discern what is actually taking place in Germany. There are many churches in New York that have veered liberal in their slant, having left preaching the centrality of Jesus Christ and making Christianity merely a social gospel. Uh, we could raise our hand. Have you ever seen that? Yeah, Uh, that's like American Christianity almost in a nutshell. Oh, this is 1931. And yet, here's what's interesting. They're teaching a, a social gospel. It's like, well, basically Christianity is about doing good things, humanitarian things. But listen to this, and yet these same liberal churches seem to be overlooking the most obvious social crisis in the entire country, lying right beneath their noses, and that is the treatment of the African-Americans. Literally, the same churches that have gone liberal, thrown out Jesus Christ at the center, are participating in the denial and the access of African-Americans to normal public life. Now, those of us that have grown up in America have been well-trained in how bad that is. However, there was a blind spot, and where did the blind spot lie? In the church. The church, even the liberal church, even the social justice church, could not see the blind spot. They thought they were doing everyone a favor by going liberal and getting rid of the centrality of Jesus Christ, when in actuality, they were the greatest perpetrators. Bonhoeffer is shocked by the complete lack of response on the part of the American church to this travesty, for he witnesses the African-American being treated as less than human. How could this be? In a nation that talks so much about brotherhood, peace, and love, how could such a massive social contradiction exist with hardly a whisper of concern in response? See, this is way back in 1931, and as a result, you feel clean of it. You're like, well, that wouldn't be me. I wouldn't do that. Bonhoeffer attends a church named Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem. It's an African-American church, and he is greatly impacted. He witnesses something marvelous there in and amongst these worshipers of Christ. He hears bold, Christ-centered preaching that both convicts the hearer and moves them to real action. See, what Bonhoeffer stumbles across in this African-American church in Harlem is he sees that when Christ is put at the center of the preaching, it actually leads to proper social action. You see, when you remove Christ from the center of the preaching and you make your church about social action, you actually miss The real need in the culture, because you don't have Christ's heart to do what is most necessary. What you do is what is politically correct, not what is Christ correct. You lose Christ, you lose truth. You lose that truth, now you don't have a compass for defining what you should be and shouldn't be doing. And so what he sees actually is going to lay the foundation for one of the key decisions in his life. He hears both Christ-centered preaching that both convicts the hearer and moves them to real action. This church does not turn a blind eye to the plight of the African Americans, but rather gives everything they have to fight against this bigotry and racism, doing it as an outflow of the gospel of Christ Jesus. And here, I know how we think as Americans. Well, they're an African American church. Of course they're gonna have a passion for that. Syria and Iraq, Christians being killed. We are Christians. That church cared about the plight of the African-American, they were willing to give all their resource, all their time, all their energies to do whatever it took to come to their aid. What about us? Our brothers and sisters suffering, not that far away. Which road are we taking? Silence? Or we need to do something. In 1931, still two years prior to the rise of Adolf Hitler in Germany, that's when this was taking place, Hitler hadn't risen to power. The ideas of this were so horrifying to Bonhoeffer. Listen to this. And at this time, Bonhoeffer remarks that this disturbing issue of racial prejudice in America was not present in Germany. That's what he says. Like, we don't have that issue. We don't have that problem. You see, when we look to other countries, we often see their, their weaknesses. We see their problems. We look at their area in paragraph. We're like, come on, church. Rise up and do something. Bonhoeffer didn't see it yet, but his experience at Abyssinian Baptist Church prepared him for something so that when he got back to Germany and when Adolf Hitler became chancellor, suddenly his eyes were opened. Oh, this is in Germany. Germany in 1933. January of 1933, Adolf Hitler ascends to power in Germany. April 7th of that same year, so we're not talking that many months in, uh, Hitler has spent some time in prison before this, and he's written his whole entire treaties out. He knows what he's up to. He knows what he's about, and he knows what he needs to do. And they gave him power. And so he begins to implement his dastardly ideas. Hitler and the Nazi regime institute what is known as the Law on the Reconstruction of the Professional Civil Service in Germany. It looks rather harmless. It's not really that big of a deal. We're just going to fix this country. We're going to do this better. We can have a stronger government. Let's fix some things. So what they begin to fix, April 7th, the same document, the third paragraph of this new law is known as the Aryan Paragraph, stipulating the removal of Jews from government positions and legal positions in the German government. You see, it's the first step forward. The Jews cannot have any say in our government. I mean, it's not that big of a deal, is it? Just sign right here, church. Look the other way, please. We'll support you. You see, we're behind the church in Germany. We want it to prosper. But you better turn a blind eye to paragraph number three. And so the church is like, you know what? It's not that big of a deal. I mean, it's not worth us dying, I'll say that, to stand against Hitler. Let's just go along with this. April 25th first one was April 7th, April 25th. This is a mudslide. This is a very quick decline. The law against the overcrowding of German schools and universities, essentially removing all Jews from all positions of educational oversight and influence in the German school system. Well, not just in government. Now that we think about it three weeks later, let's uh, move the Jews out of any teaching positions as well. I mean, if their thoughts were to bleed into our students' minds, ah, the hazards, I can't imagine. So they begin to remove them out of the educational system. May 10th, that's not very far, much later, 1933, books considered un-German, including those by Jewish authors, were destroyed in a nationwide book burning. June 30th, 1933, is all the same year, these laws were again broadened to entail that even marriage to a non-Aryan, marriage to a Jew, sufficed for exclusion from careers in government, law, and education, because that's mixed breeding. We're trying to preserve... The race. And so if you are married to one of these non-Aryans, you're out. July, same year, to September of that same year, due to intense Nazi pressure and Gestapo enforcement, nearly every business, organization, group, and order within the German society effectively had barred the involvement and patronage of Jews. Jews. The Jews were barred from the public health system, lost their honorary public offices, were driven from editorial offices and all theater positions as writers, directors, musicians, and actors, and were excluded from all agricultural work as well as medical work. To be a Jew was to be an outcast, removed from normal commerce and community. So September of that same, well, September of a few years later, the Nuremberg Laws, which are sort of the final capstone to Hitler's regime and Hitler's agenda. So it took a couple of years and we've full gone full circle through this process and the Nuremberg laws are instituted to officially protect german blood and german honor to do whatever it takes to remove this jewish threat from their pure bloodline of their to their pure bloodline from their nation so that same stretch of time after the nuremberg laws unto december of 1941 represents 6 years of hell for the jews and it was to commence in that of course a April 1933 is technically when Hitler came into power but these six years of social hell socializing of any form with Jews stopped in Germany if you befriend a Jew you were siding with the Jews and so as a result everyone pulled back from any interaction with the Jews all stores blockaded them from coming in no one would buy from them so any Jewish business no longer had any customers except for the other Jews so socialized in any form where Jews stopped in Germany, shopping in any Jewish stores ceased, causing a complete financial breakdown of the previously rather wealthy Jewish community. Most Jews, if enjoying any employment at all, were only able to function in menial jobs for paltry pay. Getting out of Germany and immigrating to another country also became an ever-increasing problem for the Jews. To leave required the Jews to pay a tax of near 90% of their wealth upon departing Germany. And added to this, by 1938, there were almost no countries on earth willing to receive these Jewish immigrants. So even if you were a Jew and you wanted to get out, you would be taxed and basically everything you own would be taken from you, and you would leave the country penniless. And if you wanted to get out, by 1938, there was no country on earth that was willing to take you. You were stigmatized. Everyone backed off and left the Jews hanging in Germany under the wrath of Adolf Hitler, So in December of 1941, in the midst of World War II, Hitler declared that since Europe had no reasonable means by which to deport these Jews, in other words, to remove them from the country, they would all need to be exterminated. The total number of Jews murdered during the resulting Holocaust is estimated at 5.5 to 6 million people. Wow. Uh, Let's talk about the church, because that's what we represent in this discussion. We're not Hitler. We're not the Nazis. But what are we doing in Germany right now? You transplant this church to Germany. How are we responding to this crisis? The story of the confessing church. So we go all the way back to January 1933 when Hitler is inaugurated into office. There's a concern. Okay, we're talking about it and we're like, uh, guys, how do, you, how do you feel about Hitler? I'm concerned about him. I don't know what he's up to, but he just has that look. I mean, that little mustache thing. I I don't know that I feel comfortable with this guy. Who is this Hitler guy, and what is he really about? April 1933, he begins to show his colors. I think we have ourselves an Aryan. I, I think he's bought into a lot of this evolutionary Darwinian thought in regards to genetics and eugenics. So the Aryan paragraph sparks the great debate in and amongst the church Bonhoeffer begins to plead. Remember, Bonhoeffer saw something. He saw a racial prejudice in America that was under the radar of the church, and he's like, that is not gonna happen in our country. No way are we gonna become like the Americans. And so he comes back and he begins to talk to all the pastors, one of the most influential men in the church, and he begins to talk with large groups of pastors, and literally, it's the equivalent of a, a boo. Get off the stage. What, do you want us, dead? Who's going to listen to Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Bonhoeffer begins to plead with the German pastors to stand up against this evil, to not submit to Hitler's move to control the church of Jesus Christ. So April of that year to May 1934, so we're talking a year and a month, there are 65 million Germans in the country. Okay, listen to this math. This is quite profound. 45 million of that 65 million consider themselves Protestant Christians. That is a massive amount of Christians in this country. So we could look at Nazi Germany and go, wow, yeah, I mean, if there was a church there, they would have done something. There was a church there. Far greater presence of a church than we even have in this country right now. 45 million considered themselves Protestant Christians. Out of these 45 million Protestant Christians in Germany, only a scant 150,000 were willing to stand up against the Nazi regime and help the Jews. Let me give that in mathematical terms. Out of every 100 Christians, 97 of them turned a blind eye to what Hitler was doing. Out of every 100 Christians in Germany in 1934, only three were willing to stand up and declare the Aryan paragraph as wrong. You would risk your career. You would be treated as the Jews are if you were to side with them. Side against Hitler, you're a dead man. You'll lose everything. Do you see how the Jews are treated? you want to be treated that way? We have freedom as the church. We can worship as this church as long as we keep our mouths shut. And this is where the confessing church broke off. May 1934, it's called the Barman Declaration of Faith, the founding of the confessing church in Germany. At that time, there were 18,000 Protestant pastors in Germany. 3,000 of these 18,000 actually vehemently opposed the confessors. They wanted these confessors dead. These Christian pastors that are actually causing the Nazis to look at us with a, you know, a jaundiced eye. Shut these guys up. Because they actually stood vigorously with Hitler. They had favor with Hitler. Hitler was giving them room to maneuver. Their churches could prosper. They could financially succeed. 3,000 of these 18,000 were actually vehemently, vigorously... Supporting. And then we have 3,000 who vehemently opposed Hitler and the Aryan agenda and stood vigorously with Jesus Christ. If you do your math on that out of 18,000, that's only 6,000 of the 18,000. There should be 12,000 other pastors. Where are they? Hey, hey, 12,000, where are you? Oh, here they are. 12,000 sat neutral, unwilling to take a side, unwilling to say anything for or against, unwilling to confess. They went silent. I have a hunch in here there is probably none of those 3,000 that support Hitler. However, it's very possible that there's a little of the 12,000 in us that is just saying it's not my business. Look, I'm not going to make this my issue. I'm fine. You know, Someone else can deal with that. But my commission today is to tell you that to be one of those 12,000 pastors is a sin. You must be one of the confessors you must. August 1937, the confessing church is declared illegal. Oh, shocker. The Nazi regime literally says, if you are part of this confessing group, that it actually calls into question what we're doing. We are now saying that that's a crime against Germany. January of 1938, Bonhoeffer is banned from Berlin, and the Nazis begin burning down churches. June of 1939, Bonhoeffer returns to America to take a seminary teaching position, avoiding the military call-up issued by the Germans. So he would have had to be put in the military, so instead he flees and he's in America. And so he's given a quite illustrious position to be a seminary professor in New York. And so this is a fascinating part of his life. June of 1939, look at the previous date, June of 1939. He just arrived. Bonhoeffer writes a letter to Reinhold Niebuhr. I have had time to think and to pray about my situation, says Bonhoeffer, and that of my nation and of God's will for me clarified. I have come to the conclusion that I have made a mistake in coming to America. I must live through this difficult period of our national history with the Christian people of Germany. I shall have no right to participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after the war if I do not share the trials of this time with my people. That's quite amazing. This man had the opportunity to still be a Christian, to even train other people to be Christians. He had opportunity to go this way and to live comfortably as a Christian in America. Instead, he deliberately chose to take this route. June, July 1939, only 26 days after he arrived in New York to teach, Bonhoeffer returns to Germany. September 1st, 1939, World War II begins when Germany invades Poland. October 1940, the Gestapo bans Bonhoeffer from speaking in public and soon after he is forbidden to publish his writings. April 1943, Bonhoeffer is arrested by the Gestapo, incarcerated in Tegel Prison in Berlin for two years. April 9, 1945, he's taken to Flossenburg Concentration Camp, marched naked to the gallows and executed for high treason. Bonhoeffer was 39 years old. His final words were, this is the end for me, the beginning of life. April April 30th 1945 literally 21 days after Bonhoeffer's execution Hitler dies the mastermind's career ends and the war essentially ends at that time even though it's not officially ending until September 2nd of that year 21 days how many of us stare at those 21 days and say Bonhoeffer you could have still been here to help the church he did help the church He helped the church on April 9th, 1945. The question is, are you being helped by it? He's given you the right way to live. March naked to the gallows, leaving literally one of the most glittering careers. This man was one of the most brilliant men, one of the most talented men. He grew up with a silver spoon. He had a lot to give, and he gave it. Jesus died at 33. Bonhoeffer died at 39. Was it a waste of a life? Not on your life. A pop quiz. Sorry. If it it was a quiz, I would have told you about it, but it's a pop quiz. So you have to be ready for these all the time in my messages. Here's the question. Are we the Three-Self Church? Are we caged or free birds? I've actually said to the pastoral staff in the past weeks that I'm sort of wondering if we're a Three-Self Church. How much are we kowtowing? to the way things are going here in America. How much am I being silent on key points that maybe I'm supposed to talk about? Now I don't have any direct conviction from the Holy Spirit that there's something I was supposed to say and didn't. However, I'm fairly sensitive to the culture in which we live. And I know what I'm not supposed to be saying and what I'm not supposed to be doing. You all probably know well enough that I'm probably writing some fine line. And yet, all I'm doing is sharing what the Word of God says. My agenda isn't anti-government. My agenda is pro-Jesus. It's pro-His government. This nation will only prosper if He is our Lord. Simply put, and I cannot just sit by and allow something else other than Jesus Christ to take over the church of Jesus Christ. Be it Hitler or be it our government. We are not ruled by a government. We are ruled by Jesus Christ. Are we more concerned about survival or confession? At different times, and I've noticed the trends in Christianity that a lot of you think bomb shelter. You think hiding place. You don't think rooftop. I'm not going to think rooftop. I want you to start thinking rooftop. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't be wise as serpents in how you think rooftop. But we must be confessors. Is there an Aryan paragraph in our generation that we are not speaking about? Well, if there was an Aryan paragraph, we, of course, would do something about it. Is it possible that we are just as blind as the Americans in 1931? And that we are not seeing actually what is taking place around us? And that we are silent at the very time we're supposed to be saying something? You know that those 97 out of every 100 German Christians did not know the extremities of what Hitler was doing? They didn't the americans took them to visit the concentration camps and show them the piles of dead bodies and they were horrified they didn't know they wanted to believe the best and yet for those of us in this room we must recognize the seriousness of the times in which we live we have a window of opportunity to be bold for the gospel without even penalty take it take it Use what we have right now, and if it's taken away, still be bold. Are we standing with the hated Jew? You're like, well, the the Jews don't have the problems that they had before. No, I'm not talking about just the Jewish people, the hated Jew. His name's Jesus. Are we distancing ourselves from him? Because to shake hands with him and to show friendship with him means you'll be treated the way he was treated. Are you willing to have your photo up with Jesus? I'm with him. Post it on the internet, let everyone know. Yeah, I'm with the hated Jew. I don't hate him, he's my savior. Are you willing to identify with the hated Jew? Turning up the pipe organ volume, we really don't want to hear the screams. And as the classic story goes, the German church sat in their church building as the train load of Jews being led off to the concentration camps passed by. The Jews screaming for help. And the Christians inside turned up the volume of the pipe organ. We don't want to hear the screams. We don't want to hear. A lot of what I'm saying, if you had known what I was going to speak about, you may not have come this morning. Because technically, you really don't want to hear it. I'm not saying give way to fear. Jesus says, fear not. That isn't our response. We boldly believe. I love the fact that I'm alive right now. I am happy to be on earth right now. I recognize the challenges we face, but we've been built to do something about it. What a crime it is to think that we have the truth of the King of Kings. We have had eyes to see it and do nothing with it in a time when it is most desperately needed. We really don't want to hear the screams. It is considered judgmental, uncouth, and inappropriate to ever speak ill of abortion. So are we gonna go silent? Just because the government endorses it, condones it, and basically our entire society is turning a blind eye to it? Should we? Are we willing to be the deemed the judgmental, uncouth, and inappropriate to stand up for this life within the womb? It is considered ignorant, anti-intellectual, and academically disruptive to oppose the reigning ideas of Darwinian evolution. And ironically, the church has followed suit. You know how many Christian colleges, Bible colleges, actually teach evolution today? Uh, uh, e- excuse me? You're, you're listening to Darwin? The anti-God, anti-Jesus Darwin? How could we? Are you going to say something? Because to actually be a creationist is literally stupidity at the highest levels. Oh, you're one of those. You take your kids to the zoo, everything is evolution. Every scientist, it would appear, has fallen in line, fallen in suit. And here we are, the idiots, walking through society going, no, no, I actually believe in a really wacko idea that God created all of this. Well, that was the reigning idea until 150 years ago. And it was odd to believe anything different. Now we are the crazy ones. What has happened? The butchery of Christians in Syria and Iraq by ISIS forces is considered merely issues of the Middle East, unfortunate and someone else's business, to 97 out of every 100 Christians in America right now. It's something to repress, attempt to forget, and block out. What if your wife and children were over there? Would you respond differently? What if all of you were over there? How would I, as a pastor, respond? Would it be different? Would I go to bed tonight just thinking, you know, I'm I'm sure the United Nations will do something. I'm guessing our American government has some response up their sleeve, that they're thinking this through at some level, and, and they'll take care of them. I don't really need to pray because I know that someone good will stand up and say something right. Would I treat you that way if you were over there? And that's the key question that is being asked to my soul. Do I treat them truly, as the Bible says, as my brothers and sisters in the Lord? Do I care about their suffering? It's <laughs> a good question. Am I going silent when I'm supposed to do something? But to, What am I supposed to do? Don't you feel that too? What am I supposed to do? There's a train going down the tracks. Am I going to jump in front of me and go, no. Well, what good is that going to do? And as a result, we do nothing. I don't know that I have the answer, but I know we need to do something. So my resolve is we first say to God, we're willing to do whatever you ask us to do. By life or by death, we must confess. Countless little lives are currently hanging by a thread caught in the machinery of governmental foster care in this country. There are more children in need of help than help is being offered by Christian families. I just had a call from an adoption agency in Florida, and this is what they told me. They actually asked if our church would consider helping some of these kids. Our church. We're we're in Colorado. But they know that if anyone would consider doing something, it would be you guys. Isn't that interesting? Remember the screaming Jews? They figured if anyone would respond, it would be the church that is in that building. They would hear. They would certainly do something, wouldn't they, if they knew we were going to our death? Wouldn't they do something? The 12,000 muzzled pastors, the question that I have for all of us is, is this us? Are we doing nothing? I mean, we're we're not for Hitler, but we're also not defined as the confessing church. Because to be defined as the confessing church... Immediately, out of those 3,000 pastors that were leading the confessing church, 700 of them were immediately arrested. Immediately. Uh, Well, that's that's like one-fourth just knocked off. And why do I get the hunch that I might be one of those one-fourth? I mean, wouldn't it be better if I just was silent and we just sort of talked about this in hushed tones and go, oh, it's so sad. Because that's what we're used to. And I'm saying we cannot do it that way. The church of Jesus Christ is not mousy. Don't we recognize our seated position in the heavenly realms? All things are under Christ's feet, and he has entrusted us with his authority. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We do not serve a weakling. We serve the king of kings. Let's act like it. But Eric, how are we to stop this? After all, what can little old me do to stop the satanic train on its way to Auschwitz concentration camp? The key moment in history, when it is obvious that something must be done and that a shrug and a blind eye are deemed the grossest sin. Arriving at the key moments, are we prepared to boldly stand and even to boldly die? I'm not saying you're going to die today. It's probably highly unlikely that you will be brought to a point with a gun to your head. However, you better start preparing today by the power of the Holy Spirit to not just live well for Jesus, but to die well. Why would we stunt what God wants to do in our life? He wants to build us as his Bonhoeffers in this generation. The men and women that are willing to be stripped naked and walk to our gallows and recognize that life is just beginning. To die is gain. Oh, I don't know if any of you struggle with it. I have an ache to get to heaven. I have an ache. The harshness of this world towards my life, the slander, the lies that come against me, Sometimes I just want to get out and I want to escape. I'm not suicidal, don't worry. (laughs) But I just want to be with Jesus. I want all of this to be silenced. I just want to be with him. And yet, what do I recognize? I still have a job to do. You have a job to do. One day, we will be with him. But right now is our opportunity to show him our love by being obedient. 1 Samuel 17, the pattern of action for the confessing church. I'm going to go through this as quickly as I can. I'm going to introduce you to the players. Saul and the soldiers of Israel, church number one. The church that veers off like the tares, like the goats. They're silent when they need to do something. Goliath, the Aryan paragraph. David, church number two. You know that church number two is merely Jesus Christ, the hated Jew, basically? That's church number two, whoever's willing to side with him. He's the hated Jew, the despised Jew. Goliath despised him. You know that your strength doesn't come in you standing against against Goliath. It comes in you stepping inside of David, the one who takes him on. David takes on Goliath. Simply put, the son of David named Jesus Christ does not stand silent. So let's go through this very quickly. Evil makes its move on the church. 1 Samuel 17. Now, the Philistines gathered their armies together, and Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together, and they encamped in the Valley of Elah and drew up in battle array against the Philistines. And this evil is not small. It's a big dog, Goliath. And the champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. I always like to use the long cubit, which is 12 and a half feet. I don't know why other people use a short cubit. It just doesn't make any sense to me. This guy's huge. You might as well make him as big as possible because he falls harder. He had a bronze helmet on his head and he was armed with a coat of mail and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and the bronze javelin between his shoulders. Now the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam and his iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels and a shield bearer went before him. The gigantic threat defies the armies of the living God. Whoa! You're defying the armies of the living God? Don't you realize what you're doing? He's defying church number one and church number one is weak. I have no muscle. It's not much of a challenge for Goliath. I think he's moving one step closer each day. Hey, bring it on, guys! What do you got? Heard you serve Jehovah. Sure, don't look very impressive to me. Church number one is proven weak. It's ill-equipped, hushed by this threat, and unable to properly respond. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Church number one. Church number one is silent, and they do nothing. Church number two is called forth to the battle. David, who's tending the sheep, gets the call from Jesse, his father. And then Jesse said to his son, Take now for your brothers and Ephah this dried grain and these ten loaves and run to your brothers at the camp and carry these ten cheeses to the captain of their thousands and see how your brothers fare and bring back news of them. Church number two, it's time to rise up. It's time to head to the battle. It's time to be a servant to those that are being persecuted. It's time. So David rose early in the morning, left the sheep with a keeper, and took the things and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the camp as the army was going out to fight, to the fight and shouting for the battle. This is the key point. Church number two is going to see something. And when you see it, when church number two sees it, you're going to see the response of David. You're going to see the response of the son of David. You're going to see the response of the church of the son of David. And David left his supplies, and the hand of the supply keeper ran to the army and came and greeted his brothers. Then as he talked with them, there was the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, coming up from the armies of the Philistine, and he spoke according to the same words. So David heard them. Whoa, 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 whoa. Did I just hear this correctly? An Arian paragraph has stepped in front of Israel. Church number two recognizes that something must be done. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. All of church number one flees. What is David doing? looking around going, people, people. Church number one opposes the courage of church number two. Isn't that the irony of ironies? You know that church number one, David's brothers, and all the other ones around him were looking at David like, what do you think you're doing? Actually going to take on this Goliath? Then David spoke to the men who stood by him, saying, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was aroused against David. And he said, Why did you come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride and your insolence of your heart, for you've come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Is there not a cause? Question rings through our souls. Church number one questions our motive. They say, what are you thinking of doing? This is all for yourself. I do it for my king. Then he turned from him toward another and said the same thing. And these people, church number one, answered him as the first ones did. Though opposed, church number two stands on behalf of God and church number one. Isn't that amazing that those, the rest of those 44,850,000 that may actually resist us and be glad to turn us over to the wolves, turn us over to the Nazis, that we still will stand for our brothers and sisters. Though they are not functioning as they ought to as the church, though they are weak, we still love them. We do not trounce upon them. They are not our enemy. That which is controlling them and duping them and tempting them is. Then David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Church number one doesn't believe church number two can make a difference. (laughs) Which one are you? Church number one doesn't believe that this little shepherd boy can make a difference. I know the odds are impossible, but are you gonna think like church number one? Come on, David, you actually think you can win this? That's what Saul says to him. You're a little boy. He's a warrior from his youth. But church number two has been made ready by God. Yeah, I may look young, but I've been trained. I've been trained on lions and bears. Right now is our training ground. And when that Aryan paragraph lands right in our lap, we'll be ready. Yeah, I took on a few smaller Aryan paragraphs in my younger years. I'm ready. Church number two approaches the battle in apparent weakness. We're going to look pathetic when we stand up against the Arian paragraph. We'll look like a little shepherd boy with five smooth stones. And what will the Arian paragraph do? It will mock us. It will hold us with contempt. The gigantic threat mocks church number two. So the Philistine said to David, am I a dog? Did you come to me with sticks? Ha ha. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Wait, buckle seat belts. We're just about to be introduced to what the confessing church does in response to all the mockery. Click. Church number two confesses in the power and the authority of the Almighty. Then David said to the Philistine, the confessing church says to the Arian paragraph, you come to me with a sword and a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines, of the birds of the air, and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. Every one of you knows this, but for anyone on looking, our battle is not the same as David's. We don't take on physical beasts. We take on spiritual powers that are controlling and puppeteering the Goliaths. There are spiritual powers behind the Arian paragraph, and that is where our battle lies. We do not stand for the Arian paragraph because of its consequences in a culture and in the lives of those around us. But our battle isn't to destroy men and women. Our battle is to agree with the work of the cross and see the powers of hell shown to be powerless. Church number two doesn't hesitate against this gigantic opponent, but sprints towards it. Sprints. Which one are you? Silent skulking? Confessing sprinting. Whoa. I think we're closer to the 12,000 that are trying to decide. Where do we stand? You see, what I call this message is the sin of silence. It is a sin to stand here just as, as it is to go down the road of silence. It is a sin to not do. The sheep and the goats are separated based on how they responded to Jesus. When Jesus comes and lays his cause before us, we are a church that does something. We must do something. I want each of us in this room to decide today a first step. I don't know what that first step is going to be, but I want you to decide on a first step. I do not want you to hear this message and be passive. I do not want you to do nothing. If you call yourself a Christian, I exhort you to do something. If we be anything, we must be a praying and a confessing church. I said to our pastoral staff, there are two things I feel must be cultivated in us as a church. I don't want us to esteem praying, and I don't want us to esteem confessing. I want us to pray, and I want us to confess. I am tired of exhorting the Church of Jesus Christ to get on their knees and pray. And then we all say how important it is. And we all agree. We all pat each other on the back and say, I agree with you, dear brother, your theology on prayer is wonderful. We must pray, but we also must confess, we must do. It is hard in this generation to do. We all esteem it, I know, but to do is hard. We have doers in this room, we have prayers in this room. It's not an indictment. It's an exhortation to say every single one of us without exception must be praying and we must be doing. That will look different for every single one of us. It'll be marked by different times of day. Some of us will be able to gather and do it together while others are busy dealing with children types of issues. And it hinders us from maybe doing the global missions trip. However, we still must all be praying and doing. Remember, O church of Jesus Christ, remember this. Are you guys excited for this? (laughs) The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. The word for anointed would be the same as Christ in the New Testament. Against Jesus Christ. They have set up their forces. They have conspired to destroy him. How is Jesus going to respond? Because we take our cues from heaven. He's our leader. Look heavenward. Is he panicked? Is he rubbing his hands together, fretting? Is the sweat breaking out on his brow? Jesus, how are you doing right now? Because they've surrounded you. You're in a corner. Your truth has fallen in the streets. What are you thinking? Look heavenward. Let's see what the answer is. What do we see? What's he doing? He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. So let's take our cues from the one who sits enthroned in heaven. Are you ready to do some laughing? We serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We are not the mousy church. We are not the silent church. We are the bold confessors of the one truth that sets people free. You've been entrusted with it. You didn't come up with the truth. You don't need to feel like the elitist and feel guilty about that. Who am I to think that I found the truth? God found you. God has entrusted you with the truth. Carry it well.
0: We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Lutie, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.